Hi, my name is Ryan Duncan Ayala. Hi, my name is Annika Perez Krikorian. Hello, my name is Jacob Santos. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to, to Affirmative Reaction. Reaction. Hello, and welcome to Affirmative Reaction, a critical theater pod from a BIPOC theater squad. I'm Ryan Duncan Ayala. I'm Annika Perez Krikorian. And I'm Jacob Santos. And we are back for week two or episode two, whatever you want to call it. But here we are. And just thank you all for the very very warm welcome of episode one. Annika, why don't we just like dive right into our first segment? Let's just go for it. We are starting our grand tradition of the hot take segment in which we will deliver our spiciest theater hot take with no context and no explaining. And if you want us to explain it, pay us money, pay us a consulting fee. So I guess I will go first. My theater hot take for this week Honestly, maybe this is a lukewarm take, but it's okay. I've been thinking about it a lot. But if we have revived Rodgers and Hammerstein in the last uh, 15 years, those producers should be in jail fully. Jail for anyone who has produced Rodgers and Hammerstein in the last 15 to 20 years. Okay, who's next? Um, Okay, so also maybe lukewarm, but I stand by this 120%. A chorus line is a perfect musical but it is not the best musical there we go respectable respectable and my hot take for this week okay so (laughs) it's a hot take mixed with um uh, a redaction from last week remember i how i said we shouldn't produce shakespeare for five years on broadway i still agree i haven't taken that back but also I actually kind of love Shakespeare (laughs) and like that old dead white man. He kind of did that with some of them, with some of them. And I'm thinking about Richard II, Richard II. I love that play and it's better than Richard III. Richard III very much gives for the heterosexuals and Richard II is for the girls and the gays. I will not be taking any questions at this time. Thank you. If you want more information, go check out his Twitter. There's some real Shakespeare simping happening on that feed. And it's okay. You know what? The duality of man is that you can say that Shakespeare shouldn't be done on Broadway and also um, simp for a dead white man who might be three dead white men. Who knows? Yeah. And then you don't even have to pay the consulting fee just because you follow Jacob on Twitter. He'll just say stuff. I might have to pay Ryan about $5, though, because I need a little bit more information about this chorus line take. I might, mm. I might need, I might need to, to, to set up that Venmo transaction right now, but we'll talk, we'll talk. we are here this week um, to talk about a white man that I'm not sure any of us really simp over. If we want to have a hot take that we simp over Arthur Miller, then that's a completely different conversation that we should maybe have uh, offline. So I don't fight people. This week, we are tackling our classics. We're trying to, to sort of alternate between modern and classic pieces and pieces we like and maybe pieces we need to have a conversation about. So in the spirit of having a conversation, let's talk about Death of a Salesman by Miss Arthur Miller. This play. So for those of you who uh, didn't, weren't subjected to uh, freshman year in a theater major um, and didn't take Theater History 100, Uh, Let's explain a little bit about what Death of a Salesman is about. Death of a Salesman (laughs) is about 
a nice young man who is not so young anymore, a salesman named Willie Loman. He's married. He's got two adult sons at this point. Um, and the play basically takes place over 24 hours of him losing his mind. He has just been really going downhill. He's a classic salesman in 1940s America, and he doesn't sell them like he used to. He's probably getting fired. He does get fired in the course of this play. And so we basically just see him break down and he lives through sort of layers of memory as he remembers like the 20s, sort of the good old days of America um, with his father and his brother who made it big. His brother was supposed to go to Alaska, ended up in Africa and came out of the jungle rich at 21, which we'll unpack that later. He sort of lives this day because his mind is like breaking down. And so he's sort of living through these layers of memory throughout the day. He can't pay his bills. He gets fired. His neighbor offers him a job and he's too proud to take it, even though he needs to pay money. And it ends like the title. It ends with his death. And the title of the play, the sort of subtitle is uh, Certain Private Conversations in Two Acts and a Requiem. So the structure of the play is really uh, very loose and more about emotional truth and the ways that psychological time and and social time breakdown more than it is in about an actual 24 hours. It's not very linear in terms of the ways that we weave the two timelines together. Ryan just rolled his eyes. And so we really are just following Willie Loman's emotional journey with his wife, Lydia, his sons, Biff and Happy. Um, okay. And then his neighbor, Charlie, and his son, Bernard, as well as Willie's brother, Ben. Ben who comes back as sort of a ghost of Christmas past. That's the best plot summary I can give for this play. It's really, there's a lot going on. Does anyone else have any other clarifying points to explain what's going on with this play before we dive into it? I do want to add formality of a trigger warning. It does mention self-harm quite a bit, and I'm sure we're going to be unpacking some of that. So yeah, let us then just jump into first thoughts. I'll start. It was hard for me to get through. I'll say it. I tried to read it like five times and it took me so like all the willpower of my being to get through it. And it's not just because of the structure, love a nonlinear story, but you know, it was just a, it was a tough sell for me for sure. Tough sell, LOL, coming out the gate with jokes. We see you, we see you. Yeah. I remember I was one of the, one of the students that were subjected to, to reading this in my theater 100 class, actually called theater 100. So I'd <laughs> love to see it. And I, <laughs> okay. So in that class, we read a lot of plays and a lot of them were not great. So Miss Death of the Salesman written by uh, Marilyn Monroe's ex-husband was one of the highlights of the class. It was one of the better ones. Uh, so for a very, and I hadn't read it since then. So that was my freshman year of college, which was in 2014, I think. So it's been a while since I reread this play. So I misremembered and thought I really liked it. I think I'm quoted somewhere, probably maybe on Twitter or maybe just to my friends that I don't like white centered plays, but Death of the Salesman is like one of those girls. I don't think that anymore. <laughs> but it's interesting. Like, I don't like the play. For myself, but there is a lot to unpack with it, which is really interesting, which brings me like to that idea of like why plays get produced a lot because and it's like there is a lot to talk with this show, but I'm always so torn between like, yes, there's a lot to talk about, but also 
can we talk about something else? I mean, here we are talking about it. To, to me, at least, it's as important for us to read plays that maybe we don't like as much as it is to read plays that we do like, right? Like, we got we got to excavate. Yes. Why? Why is this? This has been revived four times on Broadway. It has been revived three times on the West End. It absolutely sweeps the Tony Awards. It always wins Best Revival. The last revival was as recently as January of 2020 um, in London's West End. So it's like, why is she that girl? Like, why? do we keep coming back to death of a salesman and Arthur Miller maybe in general, like the crucible, I think you could make an argument for like an Evo Van Hova, but not him, uh, but not miss Evo ever again, kind of deconstruction of the crucible. I'd be down for that just because as a story, it's compelling and that's not necessarily Arthur Miller's fault, but we'd love to bring back miss Arthur Miller. I also found it very hard to get through. I think it's not written. The layers of time are so hard to read and like understand where he is. And I think it would honestly make more sense staged. But even then, like, it's just very confusing and there's a lot going on. And it's, I mean, I think for a director, like just that challenge in and of itself is very exciting. But then as a reader and as someone trying to get into the play, I was lost. I was often, I, I had to read the same page several times. I had to go back and be like, wait, I truly did not know who Charlie was for like half the play. And then I was like, okay, so I think they're neighbors. I think he's the neighbor, but why is he in his house? Like it was really, really confusing. So I, yeah, I'd really like to excavate um, why Miss Thing is the, the bell of the ball every time. I will say of all the Arthur Miller plays, I am a stan for all my sons, personally. The National Theatre in London's pro shot version of All My Sons like, was the first National Theatre production I ever saw, and I was obsessed. And so it was, you know, it came on strong. But that being said, I do agree with you, especially why this play, Jacob and I were just kind of talking about how this is kind of considered one of, like, the pinnacles of American theatre. And I don't, I don't get it. I'll say it. I don't get it. But let's break it down. Why don't we get it? What don't we understand? I mean, I would just like to say that I think Miss Sally Field will absolutely decimate any role she does. So, of course, All My Sons was good because she was in it. And, of course, Bill Pullman. We love you, too. What a king. King of my heart. King of romantic comedies, Bill Pullman. Anyway, back to Death of a Salesman. Anyway. Disassembling the American dream and capitalism is a great idea to put on stage. We should do more dissecting of that on our stages. I agree with that. I don't know that this exact take on that was super successful. And y'all interrupt me if I am wrong. Like, I get why, like, where the capitalism came in. I get where the toxicity of the American dream came in. Like, I was there. But I also felt like it glorified it in a lot of ways. Am I off base here, y'all? I mean, I think it's scary how much this play, in terms of like where we are as a society, is very much a mirror, right? Like where Willie is coming from is he's he's experiencing the aftermath of the Great Depression, right? He's living in the sort of gutted financial or economically gutted America that was America after the Great Depression. Which, similarly, we have also gone through a really bad economic recession. We're coming out of 
really shit economic times um, and feeling a lot of disillusionment with what feels like a broken promise to us about what we're supposed to be able to have in terms of prosperity in this country. But I think the difference is as brown people in America, we've never we've never gotten the chance to have the farm, to live the life, to, to even chase for that in the way that that he does. So I'm I start out sort of with a a dislike or, or I mean yeah dislike but also like disenchantment or distrust of this character just from the outset that's so interesting that you bring you bring that up like the distrust of like Willie and like his family because correct me if I'm wrong they're not they're not immigrants right like they okay yeah so it's so interesting because usually a lot of stories you see that like critique the American dream and like capitalism usually come from the perspective of immigrant families and immigrants, which is really interesting because they're 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 not that. I think back to a movie I just saw recently, Minari, which is so good. Steven Ewan is just amazing. And that was like a really beautiful and empathetic film that like was about the American dream, but didn't glor glorify it or celebrate it, but was like a critique of it and poked holes in it and like showed like how much of a fake fake aid it was and was like anti-capitalist. And it made sense because it was like how the American dream brings in like brown people and like gives them this this lie and then they realize it was a trick. But like for white people who, you know, <laughs> are not, well, you know, came here, stole land, created this country and like created all the systems to benefit off the systems they set up. And the fact that he doesn't fully makes me think about like white mediocrity and just like the limits of white supremacy. Cause you think about white supremacy, it's supposed to like put people at the top. They're supposed to be the top class, but Willie and Biff and all of them are very much not supreme. They're very much not the top class. They're actually quite mediocre in a way. And it makes me, that's so interesting of like how white supremacy doesn't even protect or cover all white people to the fullest extent that it could. It was just wild. Yeah, and it was almost like Willie was buying in as hard as he could to this idea of like the American dream will save us. And he just kept like, no, 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 just if you're likable, then you're going to be fine. If you know, if you just keep going and just keep doing this, you're going to be fine. And that just very much wasn't the case with Willie and Biff and happy is his own thing that's a whole other conversation but i found it really interesting that there was like a juxtaposition of the american dream and one of them was willie selling whatever he sells literally to his death and the other one was biff wanting to run away and be on a farm in the west and I, I don't think there it's like a good juxtaposition of each other. I don't think those are the two things, especially when you're criticizing capitalism, because, you know, that that's a major portion of this. Um, and I think Arthur Miller intended that to be a major portion of it is a criticism of the capitalist structures of America. And if your two ideas are, I'm going to work until I die so I can pay my bills and then be happy, maybe, or... I'm going to just kind of run away from it and then work for someone else. But like, it looks nice outside. I don't understand that, you know? Willie Loman is often seen as a very noble, a sort of noble, weirdly Shakespearean 
character, right? Very Lear, very like sort of Prospero vibes of like, he's really, he's fighting against these outsiders who, who will, who like will poison him. And he's, he's the noble one in this story. But I think the clear, the, yeah, like the clear divide between him and his son makes it that like, he's not a good person. <laughs> and even, even his son, like, yeah, they're both, they're both just striving for the wrong things. And so to make Willie this like pinnacle of almost martyrdom, even when, even when we're supposed to see his flaws and, but we're supposed to pity Willie Loman. And I don't, I don't pity him. I, I, I never did. And maybe that's like the central issue is that I never felt true, like sorrow for his plight. Yeah, he very much is kind of an unlikable character, in my opinion. And I know that's not supposed to be the case, but let's talk about the toxic masculinity and the misogyny that he just like is constantly berating his wife and like, let the men do this. Like, I'm sorry, what? Like, I get it. 1950s, like, get out of here. I don't follow, really. I don't follow where he's supposed to be this lovable character that everyone like aspires to play Willie Loman. And maybe that's like a range thing that you want to aspire to and, you know, go off if that's your range. But in terms of character, I, I don't understand it because he's really kind of the least likable character in the show. And his wife, if you want to talk about misogyny in this play, Miss Arthur Miller, what is you doing with these female characters? She is, I love this, in the introduction, there's a critic who called Linda, the wife, a dumb and useful doormat. Um, which... Oh my gosh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Oh look. my God. And second of all, that then the introduction was like, and that's wrong. Linda's not a doormat. She's tough. And I'm like, <laughs> babes did we read the same play oh yes she's tough because she can do math when her literal like dementia adult husband can't like yes that's a fighter right there like of course she's the better person than him but she spends the whole play being like you don't understand <laughs> willie is <laughs> he's the best man i've ever known and everyone just needs to give him a break and i love it girl he is mediocre he's a mediocre human and setting up this martyr and his martyr wife the martyr who martyrs herself for this martyr i don't even know i'm like what why is this just like a chain of pain and then the only other women in the play are like d dumb girls there's no point to them there's no point to that restaurant scene there's a scene where Willie and his sons go to a restaurant and like I mean the, it's the climax of like Biff telling him that he didn't actually get the appointment because this employer doesn't actually remember who he is and you know Willie of course flies off into the night and has a breakdown but I don't understand the purpose of those girls oh the women there are there are no women in this play there are only mirrors of men and what men want women to be which seems to be an Arthur Miller theme to be honest so yeah know, not much not much is different here if i want to give Artie credit the most credit i could give him is that oh i see what you're doing you're mirroring the like pinnacle of the american dream where you have the stand-up wife that stands by your side but i don't know if that's actually what he intended or if that's just what he thought women were so 
you know that that's the most I could give Artie on this one. I'll say it. The time period is really interesting when we think about it, like through a modern context, because like the '40s and the '50s are kind of that time people, like white folks, look back on like really fond, like late '40s and then the '50s. They look on back on it like really fondly because it's like that typical, you know, American dream, American family with the picket fence, the white picket fence and the apple pie and like how uh, romanticized that time is. But then like looking at this play and it coming out during that time and like showing a really, you know, broken family, a family that doesn't really reflect that time. I'm wondering if that's how it was like received at the time when people are watching it. They're like, oh, because I feel like in American society, uh, and like this, there's there's this idea that we like to see critiques of the society around us, but then like do nothing about it to change it. Like the way that Hollywood loves movies about Hollywood and like how hard it is and like how awful <laughs> it is to work in Hollywood, and then they give it like an Oscar and then like nothing changes. I wonder if this was like that that like this play like broke open the truth of what it means to be like someone living in America for like the white folks, and they're just like, oh my gosh, I feel so seen. And then like did nothing to change the society. And now all these years later, look back on it. I'm just like, can we go back to that? <laughs> I mean, Miller talks about this play, hoping that like this play is like a time bomb about American capitalism. I think let me pull up the quote. He said the play. Yes, the play is a time bomb, un- time bomb under American capitalism, or at least under the bullshit of capitalism, the pseudo life that thought to touch the clouds by standing on top of a refrigerator, waving a paid up mortgage at the moon, victorious at last. Which, you know, makes me think that it was very like striking out and sort of placing Willie Loman as like the cat you just ran over in the street and be like look at this this is what's wrong with our country look at this sad little thing that we've crushed right but ultimately we come back to this still this is still an issue theater itself is deeply deeply rooted in really toxic capitalist structures ultimately it is people paying like whatever seven hundred dollars for for mezzanine seats to like cry about how capitalism breaks you and then go home and benefit off of capitalism anyway i so yeah i think it's a very fitting parallel um which again makes me kind of sad that we continue to perpetuate this like yes god capitalism is so bad and men men are the ones who really suffer and capitalism is the reason uh, i hit my wife you know and so everything's okay. <laughs> yeah, really said dudes rock, and that's unfortunate. Um, but yeah, the irony of this being seven times commercially produced in a Class A production, whether it be on Broadway or the West End, is so ironic. Like, literally the most capitalistic structure in the American and all theater, West End and Broadway, is the place that loves this story about how sucky capitalism is also like really cool that arthur miller would have been at like the dsa meetings i appreciate it but like i i don't know if this is what he intended then you know having philip seymour hoffman sell however expensive tickets were and no shade to philip seymour hoffman because i'm sure he killed it as willie loman like god bless but come on like I don't think that this is what this play was meant for, you know? And the fact that the last revival was an explicitly Black cast. The January 2020 revival was led by two Black leads. 
it feels like a moment of trying to shoehorn another kind of conversation into this piece that doesn't want to have that conversation. Like, I don't, I really don't know. I mean, you know, Arthur Miller, self-professed liberal, but what would he have been like, oh, well, this isn't a play about black people. I really wonder. I don't know, actually. But like, again, the struggle of the black American man under capitalism, that's what fences is for, right? Like, I don't know that we needed to to really like, be like, wow, yeah, if you look at death of a salesman with black people, it's different. It's not. And it's kind of disingenuous to think that just adding black people makes it like relevant or good enough to put that much money into, right? I would argue that it actually makes it worse. I would argue that this story is done poorly when it's told with an all-black cast because I feel like, like Jacob was saying earlier, this is like a white man's struggle. Like, this is like the white man in 1940s and 50s America because black men and women were going through a whole different thing in 1940s and 50s America. This is, it's disingenuous to tell this story through the perspective of a black family because that's just, not it and i also you know because these characters are so mediocre and because these characters like just suck through and through like that's just rude like to start off it's rude yeah yeah we were talking about this a little bit before we started recording and like how interesting that was that like the last you know major production of it was with the black cast because when i was reading the show i was thinking i was like has this ever been done with people of color because like ryan was saying it feels like the characters how they're written like the structures in which they exist in and the ways that they think seems very white coded specifically like I think back to the scene like the flashback scene with Willie playing like passing the football in their backyard like when they reveal that like uh Billy stole one of the footballs and he was talking to him about like oh you have to look a certain way if you're charismatic and people like you and I was just thinking I'm just like say like these were black actors playing that and it's still the same world you know that there existed like 1940s america there's no reality where biff as a black man is going to look like his peers and be liked by them in the same way that like a white act a white person would it just doesn't happen and i could see it in a way where like they justify having it by black characters because like I could see where like a black traveling salesman would fail during that time because they're like during that time there was the green book you know traveling around I could see like people not wanting to sell to you because of your race like I could see it through that lens but there's other things going on in the show where I'm just like mm, no that's white people shit so it doesn't really add up for me to cast it with a color, a color filled sort of cast, I think would be very um, revisionist history, right? That we want to be able to inject color into a very white play um, and make it seem like, well, you know, when we suspend our disbelief, but this play is so mired in political and cultural and societal, like, issues that were very specific to that time. Um, of course, we still have economic anxieties. Like I was saying, like it does some in some ways feel very prescient, but still trying to put a, a, a cast of color up there and sort of have us suspend our disbelief or renew our belief in this play, in this piece, just because we do that is not fair because ultimately it is about the time and place. Like Broadway and 
the plays that get put on Broadway are always very reactionary, I feel. They are always a testament, especially new pieces, to what is going on in that time, which brings up the question of then what is the use of revivals? If we're reviving something, what are we saying about what we think the world needs, right? Why why do we keep thinking that the world needs to hear the tragic death of a sad, mediocre white man, you know, who got crushed under the weight of his own life and and the, you know, the machine of America? What What is the use of bringing back this specific play when it is so specific? Yeah, it almost feels like you're answering a later question and maybe we should we should switch. Sorry, sorry. I got ahead of myself. I got ahead of myself, but I I, I just, Um, it feels very dated, I think to me. Yeah. I completely agree with that for sure. Just a little shift real quick. I want to talk about this play dramatically for a second and like the dramatic structure of this play, like the, the storytelling elements. We talked about how the layers don't really work on paper, but maybe if you figure out how to stage them, they could be good. What else do we feel like just hit or didn't hit for you dramatically? I'm so tired of these old plays that have 85 pages of stage directions at the top. Please leave me alone. I don't want to know what color the floorboards were that the set designer chose in 1953 um, and why they need to be the exact same. That was also a thread that I was like, why did I don't like when plays give you too many stage directions, especially older ones. And you can tell that it's sort of ripped from the original production, right? I'm like, let me do my own thing. Let me imagine it the way I want to imagine it. Don't don't make me subscribe to these ideas about the way the set should look or the way the lighting is or what the what the music sounds like. I'm like, honestly, leave me alone. Get out. Like if I'm the director, if I'm working with a set designer or I'm working with a sound designer, I'm going to be like, fuck all that we're gonna do what we want but it's annoying to have to like cut it out of the script right yeah i will say i think that is a testament to the time that it was written i think back then it was like common practice to take the stage manager's script from the first like broadway production and then just publish that with every like revision and little thing that they had in there which kind of sucks especially to read all that italics was just like mind spinning but yeah, I, I definitely think that's kind of just kind of where it comes from and where it's ripped from. But unfortunately, the structure would be a lot of fun to play with as a director. <laughs> unfortunately, this play structure is actually juicy as hell. So, yeah, I have a comment, not so much about the structure. This is kind of a sidebar, but also about like how it's written. So Willie, what's his last name again? Low man. <laughs> Low man. Oh yeah. So, have you seen the movie Halloween? Like the like horror Michael movie? Myers. Yes. And you know, like the the doctor guys, like Billy Loomis, right? I kept calling Biff in my head when I was ca- thinking back. I was like, "Oh, Billy Loomis. Wait, no, that's not. It's not the same person. But maybe. No, it's not. Uh. So yeah, that just threw me off." Every time I was thinking about like this, <laughs> recording this podcast, I was like, okay, Willie Loomis and Billy Loomis, they were fighting, they were not getting along. Uh, no, actually, wait, that's the that's the script of Halloween for, and not to you, you actually did call Biff Billy a little bit earlier. I so. see exactly. Exa- I've I've messed up my words, and I think I said fakeade earlier. I don't think that's a word. Yeah. I was trying to say facade. <laughs> So I was going to save it for after the episode. I was going to save it for the after. 
Yeah, I'm working on three brain cells. I'm trying to rub them together to get a spark to get a few more, but it's not it's not happening. Poor Biff. <laughs> Poor, Poor Biff, Biff needed some right. some brain cells to rub together. And this that is what boy. we're talking about about the white mediocrity. It Biff is like the pinnacle of the white mediocrity in this play, I think. Like just everything he does just can't go right and I feel like they want to blame it on the American system or capitalism or something, but he's just like mediocre through and through. Like there's no way around it. But he acknowledges that, right? Like I will give that to Biff, right? Like the whole, his whole, the climax of his journey is he's like, no, actually we're not special. Um, We're not kings of enterprise. I'm not gonna, you know, rise to the top of this guy Oliver's company because he doesn't fucking remember who I am because I didn't actually work for him. I was a literal fucking clerk. Right. And I do actually think there were some moments of like recognition where Biff was like, you're a clerk and a manager and selling and selling. And what are you doing? Nothing. You're literally spinning your wheels. Right. Like it very much felt like a young person's predicament of like, what the fuck am I going to do with my life? Like I can't just get one job and make it the way that my dad was able to. Right. And maybe that's because it takes longer to find direction. Maybe that's because the instability of economic depression like makes it so much harder for children to establish themselves. I mean, I'm feeling that literally like had to move back in with my parents. Right. And I'm 24. So I think I, I did. I, I did like Biff the most as a character because at least he called out bullshit sometimes and he was like, dad you know, we're never going to Moscow. Like you you need to let go of this dream that like, I'm going to do something or even you're going to do something. But then it felt like it turned around where it was like, yeah, and that's what killed him. Right. That like Biff trying to acknowledge that the world is shit and we're actually not special is like what ultimately killed him. And isn't that sad. And it feels like the root of what white men fight against. Right. This like dying, like do not go don't go gently into that good night situation of like clinging to this idea that they can be kings of enterprise, that somehow a $15 minimum wage would affect them and their hustle because, you know, they work hard and they're going to have a, a bunch of cars like they're like they're ever going to be that rich. No, it, it it's important to lose that delusion. And that that delusion of literal delusion of grandeur is the root of a lot of really sick white supremacy and honestly like the root of a lot of the you know trump voters discontent i think i want to circle back to the ending well the ending of the second act i guess where willie dies i was like i'm sorry because they were having this really intense fight and then i was like oh obviously this is where it's gonna happen and then the fight resolves and then they're all happy and then Willie is like, oh, they're happy now. All right, let's give them money. And I'm like, what? Structurally, that didn't make sense to me. I like, like, it would make the most sense if they're in the middle of a fight and then he storms off and does what he does. Like, obviously. And maybe Arthur didn't want to fall into that, like, you know, cliche type thing of like, oh, he killed himself because they were in a fight. But it just it didn't make any sense to me that they had made up and then that's when Willie was like you know what you're right I think it was more that he was like 
overcome. Like the dam just finally broke in his mind. The sad thing is like this whole play is just watching a senile old man die. We're just watching an old, old senile man lose it for three hours or however. I don't know. This play, I'm reading it, felt like it was three hours long. I have no idea how long it actually plays out. Probably would be longer. It feels like a really great way to make the American white man the most victimized man in America. This play is about how it really is hard for the white man out here hustling um, for X, Y, and Z reason. And again, a reason why I'm like, why do we need to keep uh, positing this thesis? That's confusing to me. Um, but yeah, the ending, I mean, the ending, It there's, there's a third act called A Requiem, where it's Willie Loman's funeral. Ryan does not like this play. And basically, it's just his wife and his neighbors crying about him for 20 pages but yeah the requiem the requiem feels unnecessary honestly willie dies he's he he drives his car off a cliff or something he wrecks his car after all this like there's also this whole storyline about how he like had uh like a gas tube that he was gonna hook up that i think was about like he was gonna like give himself like poisoning from the gas from the, the gas heating system like he kept like having this tube ready to like poison himself with the heating system and then linda linda's whole thing is i take it out and then i put it back every day because i don't want him to think that i know i think it's happy that takes the tube out and then biff confronts willie with the tube but basically this man's been trying to kill himself this whole play probably even years before this play starts and so for him to finally do it it felt more like a little wheeze than it did like a big dramatic moment i mean in the script it's a big dramatic moment there's like lights and flashing and music and all this kind of stuff but it doesn't feel very dramatic so at the end of act one there was that moment where like it felt like he was gonna set the house on fire am i right about that or am i wrong about that like the burner was hot and then that's when they came and found the thing it just felt like willie was like it's all gonna be okay in the morning and there was like a subtext there that like they wouldn't be around in the morning until but maybe i'm wrong I thought the gas tube was the the monoxide poison, but maybe it was to burn the house down. Honestly, it was so confusing that I'm not really sure. If someone knows, if someone who is a Miller scholar uh, knows. Yeah, please tell us because I, tell us. I was a little lost about the whole gas tube bit. The gas um, tube was maybe because we also don't know how old houses work, right? Like if you had lived in that time, you would understand what a gas tube to a heating vent would have meant. And I do not yeah. know that. Or maybe I'm just dumb. Yeah. Who knows? Maybe might be both. I just did not like that that it literally ended with Linda saying, I paid off the mortgage. I was like, get out. I was like, this is way too on the nose. Get out of here. Yeah, another unsatisfying thing about the ending is like at the like near the end of act two, we get the the line. I don't remember the exact line, but Willie basically insinuates that like he's worth more dead than alive. But it's literally happening in a scene that there's the moment where Charlie's literally trying to give him a job. And I just think about like how rare that is for someone who's like lower class, doesn't have a lot of money, loses their job, and then literally immediately has their next door neighbor hand them another job and literally hand them money. So so it just goes back to like white supremacy, how like he had all of the things there to protect him and to have him be able to make it. So literally, I don't buy into like this idea that he was better off dead than alive because like 
there were so many opportunities for white supremacy to save him, but he willingly chose not to do it because of his toxic masculinity. So I'm just like, it, like you said, like we've been saying this whole time, it makes it so hard to relate or sympathize with him when there's like so many instances where like he could have saved himself. And the, the whole worth more dead than alive, he's literally talking about money. He's literally like, I am literally like fiscally worth more dead than alive. But then again, yes, we see this man reject a job. He's like, no, Charlie, I'll never work for you. I will never work for you, Charlie. But uh, could you actually make that make that $50, um, $110? Because actually I have to pay off my bro. Then get a fucking job. Like do what everyone tells immigrants to do in this country and get a job. Like he's like, I have a job. No, you don't. You literally just got fired. Literally that man just fired you. And you're over here talking about, I have a job. Go away. I don't want to hear it. Like, it just, it was so infuriating to watch this man just like literally just run into walls and like keep running at them, trying to like make them a door. And then he's complaining about how this, that, and the other thing is against him. This, you know, things aren't the way they used to be. Well, yeah. And like, get with the times or don't. or get fired. Like I it's just so hard to have any sympathy for this man and it's almost a little like masochistic to to be wanting to watch this man just be so dumb and stubborn and rude and yeah, like I'm like mean to everybody. It 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 doesn't make sense to me why that is compelling theater except to do to do the pat on the back look at us sort of exposing suffering thing but again exposing this the deep 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 existential suffering of the white man in this country i will say the one character that i unequivocally could not get out of my head as a person of color specifically a black man was howard the boss that fired him for some reason i could not stop thinking that i don't know why but from like the moment he came on stage i was like this reminds me of you know that character that replaces Michael Scott the uh, in the office um the the black manager that hates Jim for a long time that's who i kept imagining as Howard in this play and i don't know why but i feel like it just makes sense in my head stop bringing hbcus into this stop we don't howard is a great school and i don't i don't want you i don't want you putting howard's name in arthur miller's mouth stop doing that so i know we have hot takes and we finished hot takes but this is or would be donald j trump's favorite play that's what i feel like this is exactly like the american experience and he'll like leave this play with a smile on his face i don't know why i mean i would posit the opposite right like if his whole thing was clinging on to the fact that he's relevant and powerful. I mean, he is Willie Loman, so I don't think he would want to see Willie Loman die. I think, you know, he'd like, he'd, he'd be that person be like, I, it should have had a happy ending. This is bullshit. That's my Donald Trump impression. Um, But like, he is Willie, like he is the man who clings to the idea of being at the pinnacle of power. He is the man who clings to the good old days, like when you could make money a certain way. Um, and and live a certain way and men were men and women were women and whatever the fuck i think he'd be like that was that was dumb (laughs) 
Well, I feel like my mindset comes from he is Willie Loman, but he did not die like Willie Loman died. And so he'd be like, ah, I overcame that, you know? Not yet. And that's why. The night is young. Yeah, I feel like the show is more for like white liberals. Just because like like we said, like white liberals love to watch a piece of media that like critiques something, but never really calls you to actually dismantle the system that it's critiquing. Like when like reading the play, like when you think about like dismantling like capitalism and like America and things like that, it's because of like the systemic things that are in place that are like systemically oppressing groups of people. But I feel like with like white folks who, it's more of them like slipping through the cracks of the system rather than like the system like targeting them. So like Willie's more of just like, he failed at life because and he didn't get his dream because people just simply didn't really like him that much. Like they just weren't about him. It wasn't because they were just like, oh, our system has to oppress you for us to make it work. That's for that's for the other folks that they that, that they saved that all that for. So yeah, so like I feel like white liberals watching this, they'd be like, capitalism sucks, yay. But like the play doesn't set up those things which are actually like really oppressing a lot of other groups. So there's no like incentive to or like the play isn't pointing you towards something of like let's dismantle this because this is awful it's more just like yeah the american dream it's not all that's cut up to be right (laughs) and in a way it feels like you know there was so much talk after the election of like from from white the white liberal white white liberal media about how did this happen i don't understand how this happened how did this disgusting man become president and it's like this, I think this play would be the answer to that for white liberal theaters, right? Like, look at look at what we've done. Look at what we've done to these people, right? And then we sort of have our answer, right? We needed an answer for why this happened. And they, the, the answer generally that I heard was the impetus was like poor rural white people who are feeling disenfranchised by the sort of slick political agenda. That was the package that was sold. And so this play, I feel like, would be the play that's programmed right after Trump because they're like, well, let's explain this. So here's this guy, Willie Loman, and basically, like, the American dream crushes you. Um, and so white people, like, actually, we should be helping other white people so that they don't vote for Trump, right? Like, that's the way I see it and and why this play would be programmed in that time because it feels like a neat explanation right it, it's such a messy play but ultimately it gives you that yeah that catharsis of being like yeah wow the state of america really sucks for for white men damn you live like this and scene it's really easy ultimately it's easy to have that answer and so i think that in post-Trump America or whatever the fuck you want to call it, I don't think that we ever, I don't think there's a before and after. I think there's only the denouement and the climax and all those theatrical terms. I think he was just the, the high point and not the beginning. Anyway, that's for another podcast. I think this play is a great example of like what just the disenchantment of the American dream can do to you and the answers that we want to have about why this sort of radical right popped up but speaking of programming um this play as we said has been programmed a lot um and now we come to our final question which i think i've kind of already spilled my opinion but we can go forward is should miss death of a salesman be produced 
And could Death of a Salesman be produced today? Artistic directors, this is your segment. So listen closely. Yeah, no. <laughs> um, it's been produced so many times. I feel like the only reason to produce it not the only reason, but I feel like a big incentive for theaters that do still produce it is because they know it's going to be one of those money makers. It's one of those those canon shows that they know will be a pretty safe bet. It'll bring in their subscribers and they can have cool, you know, conversations about capitalism, like talkbacks and discussions. So it's a, it's a really easy play to program. And I feel like theater it shouldn't be easy, especially now in these times. But what I would be interested in someone doing is writing a small skit, an adaptation, if you will, of aliens watching a production of Death of a Salesman that kind of taps into the tradition that I've seen happening on like Twitter and TikTok of people pretending to be aliens and saying Earth is ghetto. So I want that that skit of like aliens watching Death of a Salesman and them to be like, damn, America's ghetto. <laughs> that I would want to see produced. So artistic directors, my Venmo is in the show notes. You can pay me for that idea. Thank you very much. The Aliens by Annie Baker and Jacob Santos. <laughs> I know that's not what that play is about. <laughs> but now I want to see it. Yeah. Oh my god. Um, I will say, so I gave this play so much hate, and Annika even went as far as to say, I think Ryan really doesn't like this play. And I will also say, that is not true. It sounds like it because I have a lot of criticisms for it, and I really have a lot of criticisms for it. I think this play can be done still uh, in proper context. Yeah. I feel like it does not need a class A like Broadway production, though I love irony, I live for irony. I think that with the talkbacks, with all that fun stuff, where a theater can just get a quick buck out of it, I mean, go off. So the reason why, and I will explain, the, the reason why I do like it is that though I have so many criticisms for it, there's this thing that I have in plays that like capture this very specific feeling of like despair. I love when plays can capture that one specific emotion and there's very few plays that I feel like do it properly. I think The Aliens is another one, honestly, by Annie Baker uh, that does it really well. I'd see it. Yeah, I would see it. And I should say, going back to the production that was done with the Black cast, even though we did have critiques of that from an artistic standpoint, I'm always rooting for everyone Black. So like, congratulations for those actors for getting that check. I'm sure it was good. So like, honestly, Good for them. <laughs> it did have a truly dynamite cast, to be fair. That cast was straight fire. And I, I am sad that it closed. Because yes, always rooting for people of color to get their bag. You know, we are allowed to have different opinions on this podcast. We don't have to agree. So Ryan, thank you for your testimony. Truthfully, it's a really juicy, juicy play for like an artistic team to dive into set design sound design direction like there is a lot to get into in the in like the world and construction of this play that i find to be pretty exceptional right and like ryan was saying if you want an easy money maker put put butts in seats put old white butts in seats then yeah sure do death of a salesman 
my problem with that sort of take of like, yes, it's so much fun is that like, why can't we go out and find the plays that have that level of like interest and sort of texture within them that are not this, that are not glorifying an age gone by and not a microcosm of white pain. And just to be clear, like the men who play Willie Loman, if you want to play Willie Loman, that's a trigger. That's a dog whistle. Um, and I'm going to run far, far, far away from you because no matter how much of a tragic hero it is, he is like the kind of people who are like, yes, Willie Loman is my dream role. Nah, I don't see why ultimately, despite all of the beauty, like it is a really, really good play. Honestly, there's a reason Arthur Miller is Arthur, Miss Arthur Miller really did that. But I'm tired. I just, why can't we ask for more of our theaters that we can't be mining other experiences that are more relevant, that are more prescient and just as interesting and, and, and cutting edge in terms of the way that they tell their stories. I think about a play that was recently at the Atlantic called Paris by Ebony Booth. I don't know if anyone heard about that. It, it's about a bunch of employees in a big box store. And it's very similar in terms of like the ideas of economic anxiety, obviously updated, in sort of the ultimate despair of American capitalism, but it's amazing. It's so good. And that's my like, you know, swap. Like if you wanted to do death of a salesman, do Paris instead. If you want to talk about economic anxiety, let's talk about a black woman writing about, you know, a minimum wage job and not an old dead man tottering around the stage crying for three hours. Yeah. And I also want to add an asterisk to, to actually to what I said. Um, I feel like this can be done. So, like, if our theaters treated white classical plays like they treat Black History Month plays, then that's when this should be done. Like, this should be a token play. That's how Broadway should be. And this is what I'm saying, is that Broadway should be new work. And if a revival comes up, it better have a damn good reason. And, like, I think I think it's an Uno reverse card on the diversity slot, right? Like, I want to interrogate a revival the same way people interrogate plays by people of color on Broadway. Why do we need it? Who, who is it? Is it good enough? Wait, will, will people come actually see this? I want that level. I want that same energy for any revival that comes to Broadway. I think Broadway should always be new work and, and more cyclical and not so much building the Gershwin around Wicked um, and finding new ways to use that space for new work constantly but that's also a different conversation anyway this play i guess it can be done if you want to sure should it be done not in my opinion yeah and i think that's uh that's pretty much that for the episode really we have a little bit of a difference of opinions on this one and i think that's perfectly fine i think that's exactly what we're here for let's tokenize old white playwrights there you go that's that's the tagline well Thank you so much for listening, everybody. This is our second episode. We'll be back with another um, modern modern play next week. We're trying to sort of alternate weeks between moderns and classics. And always, if you have recommendations for us to be reading next, we are always on the hunt for new stuff to talk about. We love reading plays, and we're so excited to keep doing this podcast. Thank you so much, y'all, for listening. See you next week. <laughs>